we're going to study the, the crucifixion, and it's an interesting perspective. I've taught the crucifixion. Uh, this is 16 years that I've been doing this. And then before that, at different venues, I taught about the crucifixion. And this is the first time I've ever approached it this way. Scene one, Jesus will endure the wrath of man. Scene two, next time we meet, Jesus will endure the wrath of God. For the first three hours, it was the wrath of man. For the last three hours, when there was darkness over the face of the earth, it was the wrath of God being poured out upon his son. We've learned in the book of Matthew how to live as kingdom believers in this world. We know that the, this world is the antithesis of, of the kingdom of God. And we are training and training for a kingdom that is coming and how to affect this world with our lives, to be salt and light in the world, and to represent our Lord in this kingdom of darkness in a, as a prelude to the kingdom of light that is coming. So we're in Matthew chapter 27, 26 through 44. Please stand as we read the word of God together. We honor God by standing and reading his word. And I want to say to you today, it is a delight for me to be able to share with you the infallible, inerrant word of the living God. This word that you have in your hand is a treasure and it is abject truth that you can apply to your life. Picking it up in verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them when he had scourged Jesus. He delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium, gathered the whole garrison around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him, before him, mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the reed, struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. Then they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he is king of Israel, let him, come, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. And he trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. This is the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the things that we will be learning about the crucifixion this week and next when we meet. Thank you that you have revealed to us your people things that you want us to know. Holy Spirit, open our hearts, open our minds. Let us set the world aside for just a few minutes and receive from you today the treasures that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Please be seated. The theme of Matthew, it's only going to be for a few more weeks, folks. Jesus is the promised king. The king is coming. We learn that Jesus has endured six trials, three of them religious and three of them civil. At the last religious trial, he had, an, he had an, a, a dialogue with the chief priest. And then at dialogue, the question was asked, tell us if you are the Christ in Matthew 26, 63. And Jesus succinctly answers the question, it is as you said. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Now this statement put the chief priest into a tizzy. He, threw, he tore his clothes saying, he has committed blasphemy, claiming to be God. For you see that the Son of Man is a title used in Daniel 7.13, which they were all familiar with. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, folks, is God. Psalm 110.1. The Lord, listen to this word usage. The Lord Jehovah said, said to my Lord Adonai. God says to God. Notice the God that he's talking to, the Father. Sit at my right hand. Who's sitting at the right hand of Father right now with his priestly role? Jesus, till I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus then goes to Pilate. And they bring the accusation before Pilate that he has blasphemed. In John 19, 7, we read these words. We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. He's claiming to be God. From there, from Pilate, Pilate says, well, I don't want anything to do with him. He sends him to Herod, hopes Herod can deal with Jesus. Herod wants Jesus to perform tricks, to perform miracles. I've heard of this miracle working Jesus. I want to see some tricks. Jesus wouldn't do a thing before Herod. Was probably beaten and then sent back to Pilate. And it was at that point that Pilate capitulates to the crowd's demands. And Jesus is then crucified. Crucified. Scene one, Jesus will endure the wrath of man. Torture, degradation, humiliation of their creator. We pick it up in verse 26 through 31. Then he released Barabbas, the robber, the insurrectioner, to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the praetorium, gathered a whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him, mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the reed, struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Started with the scourging. Now, you have been in many teachings on the crucifixion of Jesus. You're familiar with this. Scourging was, was awful. The Jews could scourge somebody 40 times, and because they didn't want to break their own law, they would only do 39 lashes. There was no such rule with the Romans. They, with impunity, the guy with the whip, could just keep slashing and slashing away. And not only did that happen, but at the same time, they take this crown of thorns. And you're going to see a picture here. These are sharp, sticking thorns. And they don't just set it on Jesus' head gently. They screw it into a sculpt, right into the periosteum, where the bone, where the bone pain receptors are. And that Jesus is in excruciating pain as this thing is screwed in. He endured the scourging. 
over and over and over. They use something called a flagrum or a flagellum. And you'll see in these pictures, it's this metal with these sharp ends on it. Or it had pieces of sharp bone on it. And they would take that whip and they would lash him, not only on the back, they would do the front, they would lash him all over his legs. And every time they slashed him, it would just open up wounds. And they would slash you so hard that your guts could come pouring out. Listen to what this person, how this person describes this beating. The person to be whipped was stripped of his clothing, naked, tied to a post or pillar, and beaten till the flesh hung in, in shreds. There was no maximum number for the Romans. They, with impunity, could whip as long as they wanted to. Men frequently collapsed and died as a result of the flogging. The Jewish historian Josephus, listen to this one, says with some pride that he had whipped rebels in Galilee until their entrails, their intestines, poured out. Gross. The pain, the humiliation doesn't stop there. They spat on Jesus, spit in his face. They took a reed and struck him on the head. In John 19.3, they used their fist and they pummeled at Jesus. Every word commentary says this, the band of soldiers together began to mock his claim to be king of the Jews. They threw a robe around him, continued to strike him across the face. They took the scepter from his hand, used it to whip and drive the thorns deeper into his skull. Finally, they ceased this sadistic treatment ripped the road from his back. This tore open the dried blood caked to its lining. Excruciating pain followed. Can you imagine what is going on here? Jesus, God, is being tortured by man before he goes to the cross. 700 years prior to this, the prophet Isaiah described what Messiah would go through. Isaiah 52.14 says this, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. He no longer looked like a human. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says this. Now this is telling you what this whole thing is about 700 years before it happens. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. They grabbed Jesus' beard and ripped it from him gaping holes in his beard. And he didn't, I did not hide my face from the shame and the spitting. And in chapter 50, verse 7, the next verse, it says this, how Messiah would go through this. Now listen to this. I, for the Lord God will help me. That's the only way we make it through any of the thalispus, the crushings of life, the tribulations of life. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. It was a disgraceful thing hanging naked on a tree in front of your mother, in front of the women, in front of the whole world as they pass by Jesus. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, steadfast determination, and know that I will not be ashamed. Now, you take a hard stop right here. And you think about your life. And you think about the things that are coming down the pike, or things that you've already been through. You may need this verse one day when the world crushes you. It's not if the world will crush you. As you know, it is when the world will crush you. You're living in a fallen world where all kinds of garbage happens. It's just the way that it is. 
And like Isaiah and like Messiah, you too can say at that hour when the crushing hits your house. See, it always hits somebody else's house. But eventually it comes to each one of us, folks. Comes to each one of us. You too can say, the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. I will set my face like a flint and know that I will not be ashamed. This is what God has called me to. And he'll give me the strength to go through it. Psalm 118.6 says this, The Lord is with me. The Lord is with me. Remember that all through your life. The Lord is with me. I am not alone. No matter if you're in a hospital bed alone, you are not alone. You're in some cave alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. Then he goes on to say, For what can man do to me? What can any of life's circumstances do to me? Think about whom they are torturing. They're torturing God himself. God himself. Eternal. Omnipotent. Omnipresent. Omniscient. The God who rules the universe. The God who holds everything together with his deity and his power. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 tells us exactly who this person is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And some people make a big deal out of that. He's just the image. He's really not God. Hold on to your hats. For by him all things were created. Well, who created? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? God created the heavens and the earth. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. That's all the angelic realm. All things were created through him and for him. And then listen to this. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist are held together. If the Lord Jesus let go, we would all just, all of our atoms would just go foomp and just, 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 just be dispersed all over. Zadiades in his Greek text can help us with this. He says image is the icon. The icon. It always assumes a prototype. That prototype would be God. That which is, is not merely resembles, but is from where it, what it is drawn. The Son of God is God. God incarnate. Now there's a slide that's going to come up here that might help us with this. Icon is the manifestation, representation, the perfect expression of God because He is God. All the fullness of God dwelt in Him in verse 19. In Hebrews 1.3, he reflects and radiates the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Who holds this thing together? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10 says this. Now, why am I emphasizing this? That Jesus Christ is God. Because every world religion... And every cult denies that Jesus Christ is God. The only ones that realize that He is God Almighty are the Christians. Are the real Christians. The true Christians. Colossians 2, 8-10. through 10, See to it that no one takes you. That's us. That's, it's written to us. Captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. Philosophy. Philosophy is the love, 
Sophie, Philo is love, Sophie is wisdom. The love of worldly wisdom. Let no one take you captive through hollow and deceptive worldly wisdom, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Then he says this, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and every authority. Now, think of what's going on at the cross. Think about this prelude to the cross. Think about these ignorant soldiers humiliating Jesus, beating Jesus, degrading Jesus, their creator and their sustainer. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 gives us some more insight into who Jesus is. Who, speaking of Jesus, being in the form of God, let that word form resonate within you because I'm going to explain it more in a second, thought it not to be robbery, to be equal with God. Form is morphe. Morphe, and it refers to an outward display of an inner reality. Jesus' inner reality is that he is God. Zadiades helps us with this. He says this, None could be in the morphe of God, the form of God who was not God. He who has been from eternity past, morphe theo, theo is God, in the form of God, took at his incarnation when he became one of us, a human being, which was a huge sacrifice for Jesus, became the morphe dulo. Now, you know, as Bible students, what doulos is. It means bondservant. He took the form of a bondservant. Forever, Jesus is the God-man. We term this the hypostatic union. I have a picture here that will come up on the slide. Fully God and fully man. Now, this is Jesus' permanent state going forward. He is fully God, fully man, forever. He became this for us. In Philippians 2.7, it says this, that Jesus emptied himself of no reputation, taking on the form, the form of a bondservant, of a doulos. That word emptied himself is the kenosis. It was the self-emptying of using his power, his God powers while he was on earth. Jesus did what he did through the power of the Holy Spirit when it came upon him. He accomplished everything through that power. You have the same power. Not that you're going to be able to do what Jesus did, but you have the power to live this life out more successfully than you think. You have something that is in you that is a treasure, the Holy Spirit. I'll expound on that more as we go through this teaching. The one they are torturing is their creator, their sustainer, the one that holds everything together. Without Jesus holding all of this together we would implode, poof, be gone. Excuse me, I have to find my pointer here. Now, I have a picture here. Now, most of you or some of you have heard of Lou Giglio. Lou Giglio does a talk about laminin. That's a substance that is inside of cells that he says looks like a cross that holds everything together. Now, I have a slide here from his presentation, and he says he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. This is the laminin that is inside the cell. Now, he says that this looks like a cross. Now, I want to share with you some more additional information here. 
The laminin protein is an amazing example of God's intelligent design. Its cohesive properties holding things together bind together the 37.2 trillion cells in your body and serve to demonstrate God's incomprehensible creative design irrespective of its shape. Why am I saying that? Not all laminin is in the shape of a cross. Here's an electron microscope picture. Now in this, you have different shapes, different sizes. Some of them may look a little bit like a cross. It doesn't matter that it looks like a cross. It matters that God has put this thing in here that holds everything together. If he didn't have that in there, things would fall apart. The one that holds everything together came here for you and I so that we could be part of his family. He demonstrated his love for us. We could never pay the price. Only Jesus could pay the price for us. John 15, 13 tells about this wonderful love. Greater love has no man than this to lay down his life for his friends. You know what he says? I call you friends if you do whatever I've taught you. If you obey me, I call you my friends. One day, we will all realize who Jesus is, who he really is. Now, the Apostle John, remember, he's the inner circle with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He had some special times with Jesus. Jesus poured into the inner circle more than he did the other 12. But the Apostle John, on the island of Patmos, sees the resurrected Jesus, sees the glorified Jesus. And on the island of Patmos, we read these words when, Jesus, when, Paul, when, when John runs in, to Jesus. Now watch what he says in John in Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now in the book of Revelation, we did our teaching on chapter 1. We know that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches, represent the seven churches of, of Revelation. And in the midst of the lampstands, Jesus is always amongst his church, one like the Son of Man, code God. Eighty-one times Jesus is identified as the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, his priestly roll. His head and hair were white like wool, much like the Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 description of God the Father on his throne. White like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass. Purity, as if refined in the furnace. And his voice like the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Oh, the seven angels of the seven pastors of the seven churches. And out of his mouth went a two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And then John, in his humanity, seeing this celestial Jesus, I saw him, fell at his feet as dead. But Jesus, in his gentleness, listen to this, laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, John. I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Who's, who's identifying himself as? God. God. I'm the beginning and the end. I am him who lives. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Jesus overcame hell and death 
with his resurrection, folks. What did it say? What did uh, Jesus say to Martha, Mary and Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never, ever, ever die. Never separated from God for, for an instant. Absent from the body. Present with the Lord. We never die. Never die. Jesus endures the wrath of man. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. He did it for us, folks. He endured the wrath. Now the march to Golgotha. It's going to have several stages Verse 32 through 34. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene. Simon by name. Now this is the only time this guy is going to be mentioned in the Bible. But forever, for what this man did, he's going to be remembered. Helping Jesus carry that cross beam. Remember, you had to carry the cross beam to the cross where they would attach you to the cross. Attach you to the cross. Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, this is to say the place of the skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Stage one. Stage one. They led him away to be crucified. Now, when you hear the word crucified, if you were a prisoner, it would send shivers up and down your spine. Oh, no, I know what that means. I've seen this plenty of times. In the time of Jesus, over 30,000 people had been crucified. It was very common. And the Romans were very brutal. People knew what to expect when someone hung on that tree and rotted. They usually rotted on the cross. And the birds would peck at them and their skin would fall off until their skeleton was there. Then they would take them down and they would throw them into a common grave. Jesus went to a rich man's tomb because it was prophesied. The two other guys, they went into the common grave, the, the two thieves, not Jesus. It was prophesied that he would go into a rich man's tomb, and Joseph of Arimathea fulfilled that. Stage two, they found a man of Cyrene. It was Simon. Him they compelled to carry his cross. Now, you know that Jesus was so weakened by the scourging, he was probably in hypovolemic shock. He probably was bleeding profusely. Weakened, he couldn't make this journey. He couldn't lift it anymore. So this guy helped him out. Now, who was Simon of Cyrene? Well, you're going to notice here on the slide that he comes from northern Africa in this place called Cyrene. The question is, is why would a man from northern Africa be in Jerusalem at that time? And it's because of the Passover. This man was a Jew. And every able-bodied Jew must make it for Passover if they can. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles were the three feast days that every able-bodied Jew must attend if they can. So this guy was an obedient Jewish follower of God. An obedient Jewish follower. Now, Simon carried out his part in this play. He carried the cross of Christ. But I want you to think about something. You are to carry out your part in this play called your life. Your life as you're living it out for Christ. And how are you to do that? Jesus says very specifically, how are we to carry out our part? Our cross. Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, you're familiar with this. Let him deny his cross daily. Daily. And follow me. And take up his cross daily and follow me. This is an invitation, as Watchman Nee says in his book, The Normal Christian Life. This is an invitation for every believer to die to the self-life. 
This is not about me, folks. When you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is all about Him. You've been purchased with a price. You've been bought with a price. Your life belongs to the Lord Jesus. Look at, we die to the self-life and we submit our lives to Christ. Stage 3, Luke 23, 27, watch this. A great multitude of the people followed him, and then I stopped there, but it goes on to say this. And women also mourned and lamented him. Jesus tells them not to weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about what is going to happen to the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Listen to this dialogue. This is Palm Sunday. This is a few days before this crucifixion is taking place. It's on the Sunday before. And this dialogue goes like this. As he drew near the city and he wept over it saying, If you had known, even you, especially this your day, the thing that makes for your peace, for your shalom, for your fullness, it's found in Jesus, and they rejected him. Make for your peace. But now they are hidden from you. He was rejected. He was going to be rejected. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave on you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know when I came. You did not recognize me and should have known. Leveled to the ground. One million Jews died when Titus's armies came and assaulted Jerusalem. One million. Babies, moms, dads died. Stage four. The arrival at Golgotha, the place of the skull. And when you go to Israel, you get to go to this place there's a couple pictures here. What this isn't showing you, there's a parking lot right here with all these people walking around trying to figure out, is this the skull? Well, I guess these are the eyes, and I guess you can make something out of it. And the artist tried to help us with this. But this is the place of crucifixion. At least they think where Jesus was crucified. In stage five, they gave him sour wine mingled with gold to drink. Now, why did they do that? It was an act of mercy. Because Mark says that they added myrrh to it, which was a narcotic. He would not drink it. Why? See, it was an act of mercy that they would be hung on the cross and have some sort of pain relief. Jesus refused it. Why did he refuse it? He had to have a clear mind as to what was going to be accomplished. He had to deal with the, with the one thief that would repent. If he's all clouded up, he can't deal with that. He won't say, Father, forgive them. He won't say, Woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. That's going to be coming in just a second. Jesus made it to his destiny, the cross. Jesus came for this reason. The cross was why he came, to die brutally for the sins of the world. It, sin in the eyes of God is brutal. Brutal. Sin is awful. The price paid for our sins was awful. The crucifixion was awful. But you remember in Gethsemane when Jesus said these words in John 12, 27, as he's speaking to the Father, but for this purpose I have come, to go to the cross, to die for the sins of the world. The crucifixion is next. The literal crucifixion. To be set on the cross, 35 through 37. Matthew doesn't expound on this a whole lot. And they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots. 
that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. This is fulfilled prophecy. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, this is the soldiers, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Now you know, we know, because we've been through this many times, the crucifixion, that it was a horrible, horrible, horrible death. Tacitus, a Roman historian, calls it a despicable death. Cicero, a Roman statesman, called it the most cruel and horrifying of deaths. Incapable of description. Incapable of description. Most commentaries will then expound on this and tell you how awful it was. The pain of the spikes driven through Jesus. Now, I had a slide here where it had this huge nail, and I failed to put it in our overheads, but it doesn't go through the foot here. It goes through the heel bone, right driven through the heel bone, so it doesn't slide out. It doesn't just tear out. It stays in place. Huge, painful. Every time Jesus breathed, he had to lift himself off the cross with the nails through his wrists, and he's breathing to try to live. Every time he collapses and lifts up to breathe, you can feel the ripping in his hands. The weight of his body pulling against the spikes as the cross was jolted into place. Boom! The scorching sun, the unquenchable thirst gnawing at his dry mouth and throat. The blood oozing from his, from his scourge mutilated back. His crown of thorns on his brow. His feet just bloodied and in a mess from the spikes and his club beaten head. There was then one person wrote this. There was never a more cruel form of execution than crucifixion upon a cross. It's terrible. It is terrible what Jesus went through for us. He did it for us. First Peter 3:18 really elucidates this clearly. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Then it makes an anecdotal note here in the narrative that we just read. And it says simply, the soldiers sat and watched Jesus die slowly. See, all the humiliation was done. All the beatings and spitting, that was all done. Now their job was just to confirm the death of Jesus on the cross. Just kind of watch him die. In this setting, with the soldiers that brutalized him, you hear the first cry from the cross. And it is this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Let me say something. This is called divine grace. Divine grace given at Jesus' darkest hour. And it's the same grace that we receive throughout our lives. Undeserved, unmerited favor of the living God. John 1.16 says it perfectly. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Like waves lapping up on the shore. Grace for grace. And I have a slide here. It just shows you lapping up over and over, grace upon grace. You have received this in your life. Over and over, the giving God has graced you and graced you and graced you. And don't miss this, what Pilate had placed above Jesus' head. 
This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And boy, did this irk the chief priest and the elders and the Pharisees. For they went to Pilate and says, oh no, don't say that. Say that he claims to be. He says he is. And Pilate says, oh, I have written what I have written. He's had it up to here with the chief priest and the Pharisees. In verse 38 through 44, the wrath of man, the degrading continues. Watch this. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, "Who you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him. What a degrading thing to say. If God will have you. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And we know in Luke twenty-two forty that one of those repented. One of those repented. For three hours, 9 to 12 noon, the wrath of mankind is poured out on Jesus. This is a slide from a man called Raphael Pamplin. And if you go to a place called Slide Player on internet, you can find all kinds of slides, and that's where I get a lot of these, that will help you with your talk. You have other people that have done the work, and so I just take the work and, and apply it to us since I don't know how to do this myself. So. so the timeline for the cross is here. He arrives at Golgotha at 9 a.m. in the morning. He is hung on the tree. By the way, this is the same time that the Passover lamb is tied up in preparation for sacrifice. For three hours, he is brutalized by humanity. At 12 noon, darkness comes upon the face of the earth, and God, in phase two that you'll hear about, pours out his wrath upon his son. We are here now. At 9 a.m. in the morning, Jesus is hung on the cross. What happened during those first three hours is significant. Two robbers were crucified with Jesus. Isaiah 53, 12 says he was numbered among the transgressors. Jesus could not have been crucified alone. Those who passed by degraded Jesus. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Humiliating Jesus even more. The chief priests, they see their opportunity. They're going to jump in. And exacerbate this thing with the crowd. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him. And even the robbers pile on. They revile him with the same thing. And again one robber repents. And you know what he says? When he sees Jesus. And the way that he responds to the soldiers. Which I'll expound on in just a second. He says this. Remember me Lord. When you come into your kingdom. Now that was enough. For this robber to be saved. He remembered me. He believed and put his trust in Jesus as he saw him hanging on the tree. I believe in you, Jesus. He didn't do any extraordinary things. He had not one opportunity to do any work whatsoever. He was saved by the grace of God at that moment. This was an awful time for Jesus. Brutalized. Physically, emotionally, the worst is yet to come with the wrath of God and the spiritual aspect of it. But this week we're focused on the wrath of mankind. 
On the cross, mankind was degrading Jesus, make no mistake. But yet Jesus was thinking about them. The first cry from the cross occurred during this time frame. Now I have another slide here. This will be complete next time when we meet with the seven sayings of Jesus. But he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. That's a, that's a cry of forgiveness. Then he says to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then he says to the, to the woman, who is his mother, woman, behold your son. And he says to John, behold your mother. It's a pass off of, of Mary to John, take care of mom while I'm gone. Take care of him. That's exactly what is happening here. All an expression of God's, of Jesus' love for people. Listen to this. It was a cry of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. It's a cry of promise. This day you will be with me in paradise. Let that resonate with you. You could say that to yourself. On that last moment when you breathe, this day you'll be with Jesus in heaven. You'll be with him in what they call paradise. And then the care of his mother, all directed at people. Even those who were brutalizing him, Jesus extended his love to. Now in closing, the wrath of mankind has been on display against God from the very beginning. Very beginning. Past, present, it'll go into the future, it's going to get worse as the time goes on. Past, present, and future. It's mind-blowing to me how anyone can deny the Lord Jesus, mock Him, degrade Him, and ignore Him. Ignoring someone, listen to this, is the greatest form of abuse. You're telling that person they are of no value. That's what shunning does. When you shun someone in, uh, what's the, those people that were the Amish, thank you, the Amish people, they shun. They shun. That's the, that's the most difficult thing that a person can go through to be ignored. The greatest abuse a person can do to God, listen to this, is rejecting his son, ignoring his son. Now, I want to share something with you. So everybody perk up, everybody wake up, everybody look up here for just a second. In 1971, there was a play called Jesus Christ Superstar. This was a blasphemous play. It depicted Jesus as something who he was not. One of the lines was this, that they gave to Jesus. I will drink your cup of poison, nail me to your cross, and break me, kill me, take me now, before I change my mind. Now juxtapose that with Isaiah 50 verse 7. I will set my face like a flint, and I will not be ashamed. I will set my face. That's Jesus. He was determined to die for us. There wasn't any of this, I think I'll change my mind at the last second. There was none of that with Jesus. Then you have Mary Magdalene has a song. Remember? I just don't know how to love him. It's catchy. You heard it. Well, if you're in the 70s, you heard it, okay? <laughs> but part of that goes like this. I don't know how to take this. I don't see why he moves me. He's a man. He's just a man. And I've had so many men before. In many ways, he's just one more. 
That's what the culture, how the culture views Jesus. Now take a hard stop here and let me let my jugular vein stick out. Jesus is not just one more. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is your creator, sustainer, your life preserver. And by the way, He is your only hope. He is your only hope. Now I ask you a question here. What was happening in the spiritual realm, in the late 60s and early 70s. There was a movie just out about it, Chuck Smith. Remember what it was? Jesus' Revolution. Now, in that time, many, many got saved. Tens of thousands ended up getting saved, and Calvary Chapel was spurned from that, where you get upon this line-upon-line teaching, and Maranatha music came from that, and that's why you have the contemporary worship and that sort of thing. Well, that was happening then. So what does Satan do? He puts a counterfeit out there in 1970-71. Jesus Christ, superstar. Counterfeit, a humanistic Jesus. Even suggesting that Jesus had a relationship, a sexual relationship with, with Mary Magdalene. How blasphemous. Remember, Jesus came here and he gave up heaven to come here, to become one of us. And it had to be crushing to his father what was going on with Jesus on the cross. He had to watch his son being brutalized and ignored. How does the average person today, now remember they pass by Jesus, wagging their heads, saying these things to Jesus. How does the average person today, the passerby, abuse Jesus today, abuse God? Any person that ignores Jesus' claim to deity abuses Jesus. Jesus clearly believed that he was God. In John chapter 8, they're going to stone him for a statement that he makes here. Watch what he says. Jesus said to them, these Pharisees, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Capital I am. That is the ego am I. Jesus is telling these people succinctly, concisely, that I am the one of Exodus chapter 3. I am the burning bush. I am God. I am God. And what did they do? They, the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They took up stones to throw at him and kill him, but he passed right through them. Amazing. Amazing. Any person... Number two, any person taking Jesus' name in vain abuses God. How does this look? We've been through this before. Exodus 27, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is a, a commandment. This is a commandment, the second commandment. Be careful how you represent Jesus to the world around you. Taking the Lord's name, name in vain is very, very serious. The word is this. This comes from Zadiades. The word vain is shava. S-H-A-V. And it can mean profanity or swearing falsely, but it includes this, and I think most significantly, it is impugning the reputation of God. Impugning the reputation of God. To say something that is not true about Him. This happens all the time. Particularly to God's Son. Saying that He is something He is not. Islam says He's a great prophet. Hinduism say, oh, he's a wonderful teacher. Buddha says, oh, he's an enlightened one. He's an enlightened one. The Jews deny him altogether. Every cult denies that he is God Almighty. We are the only ones that believe by the proof of Scripture that he is God and who he says he is. 
careful how you represent Jesus in the world around you. It's very easy for all of us to do this. Number three, any believer that makes a flesh choice instead of a faith choice abuses God. Why do I say that? Because it is a willful choice to choose the darkness over the light. And we are all guilty of this. So don't get too down on yourself because this happens to us. Just be careful. Now, how do you make a faith choice instead of a flesh choice? Well, you can't on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit within you. Remember, Jesus in John chapter 14 says, I will go to the Father and he will send the helper to you. This helper is the parakletos. He's your comforter. He's the one that is right beside you, directing you, encouraging you, and helping you. You are not perfect here, but God views you as perfect the moment you believe in his son. But walking this thing out perfect isn't going to be possible. We're not going to be perfect until we're glorified. But it should be direction, not perfection, but we should be moving in a direction that I'm making more and more faith choices and less and less flesh choices. Now, think about this. Because we do not conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ all the time, God graces us. He gives us mercy. He just doesn't snuff us out. Aren't you glad of that? I am. (laughs) Believe me, I am. Psalm 103.10 says this perfectly. He has not dealt with with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Why is that? Psalm 103.14 tells us perfectly. For he knows our frame and he realizes we are dust. We are simply dust. He graces us, folks. And number four, any person who does not speak for Jesus at crunch time, you know what that is, abuses God. Blending and not speaking the truth. Cowering in a corner. Not standing for your faith. Going along to get along. Playing it safe. I'm not going to put myself out there. I'm going to play it safe. It's not pleasing to Jesus. And again, you have a promise. Then when it comes time for you, where your crunch time comes, you will have the power to stand if you invoke and utilize the power given to you. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says this to his disciples, and by extension to every believer today, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, epi, upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to all the earth. And then Jesus gives the Great Commission, and in a few weeks we're going to hear it. Go and make disciples of all nations. How do you do that? You do that in the Spirit's power. You can't do that on your own. You can't stand against the the wiles of the devil. So I want you to think about something. When you're going into this world today, and I've mentioned this recently before, but I think it's worth mentioning again, know who you are in Christ. Know who you are. Be who you are in Christ. Don't be some chameleon. Be a real follower. And then act like who you are in Christ. Folks, you are an overcomer. You are a victor. You are not a blender. You are not a chameleon. You know, kind of partially with Jesus and partially with the world. Oh, no. This is a time for all-in Christianity. This is not a time for mamsy-pamsy Christianity. Folks, it's coming. Our world is changing. You can sense it. You can feel it. 
You can feel it right before your eyes. It is coming. There you have it, folks. Scene one, the wrath of arrogant mankind on Jesus. And again, I say persecution is coming. We saw the Mission India statement, and they told us how to stand for this. Remember the three things? The reality of persecution. It's happening in our world today in spades all over the place. Just hasn't hit us here heavily yet. The response to persecution. Remember what the response was? Just like Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was the response to those people being brutalized in India. And then the reward of persecution was this, all in, all in, no waffling, all in. This is an awful time for Jesus, grieving to the Father, grieving to the Holy Spirit, grieving to the angelic realm, grieving to us as we realize what Jesus went through. But this pales in comparison to scene two next week, where God pours out all of his wrath on his son. All of it. Every single sin that ever has been committed from the beginning of mankind, Adam and Eve, all the way to the last dude or dudess that is here, all of them are on Jesus Christ. Everything that I have done is on Him. Heartbreaking but necessary for Jesus to suffer. Why? Because there was no other way. Only the perfect Adam Only the perfect sacrifice could die for us. Jesus had to die to save us. Look, we use this word saved. And we usually look at it as being saved to go to heaven. Folks, you're saved from the wrath of God. That's what Scripture says. You are saved from the wrath of God. Your destiny is forever with God. But you are saved from His wrath. Jesus' blood when it is applied to your life, cleanses you from all your sins. And then what happened at Passover? The death angel passed over. What happens to you when the blood is applied to you? The death angel will pass over you. And you live forever with God. Folks, this is good news. In the end, in the end, we have all this deep theology, but it gets down to this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and how it speaks to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, how you use your word to penetrate deeply into our beings. And I pray that every person today has heard something that is specific for them, that they will know that we have a God that loves us, that cares for us, that wants us to be with him has done everything possible to facilitate that for humanity. Oh, but we must believe and receive the gift of salvation so willingly given by our Lord. May that happen today. May somebody hearing this talk say, Today, I'm following you, Jesus. I believe in you. I place my trust in you. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. You are my King. And I give my life to you. I pray that happens today. In Jesus' name, amen.